There's a universe inside each of us. The Innerverse Podcast is your portal to that infinite realm of ideas. I'm Chance Garten, and I'll be your host as we serve up inspirational sound waves from the brightest minds with the highest vibes. And we keep searching for the empowering perspectives we need to create our greatest masterpiece of all, our lives. Welcome to the one within all to another Innerverse journey. I'm your host, Chance, and this recording is coming at you from the rarest of all days, February 29th, a liminal gateway itself and the perfect time to be taking an unexpected trip. On the many paths we take in life, the question of destiny, fate, luck, and free will are ones that we have to wrestle with many times. And like all universal principles in our cosmos, the truth seems to be founded on paradox. The answers to our biggest questions only come after exploring the most perplexing perspectives and finding our inner light while in dark places. On the quest for the best reality we can imagine, we find that the innate desire to create what we're here to make is shrouded in mystery, and our purpose can seem unknowable until we discover it by travailing in the depths of circumstances we didn't want but feel powerless to change. Whether we assume the persona of the hero, the sage, the hermit, or the shadow, the archetypal blueprints for these ways of seeing ourselves are deep inside us, and the characterological roles we play are somehow innate to the human condition. Although the full spectrum of consciousness configurations are as eternal as spirit itself, we typically first experience our connection to archetypes by meeting them in the external world via legends, myths, and stories that we hungrily consume in our never-ending exploration for higher meaning. As components of the infinite self, archetypes are expressed everywhere from the qualities of constellations in the sky to the occulted symbolic meanings inherent to the plants of the earth, and a comprehensive study of that spectrum of correlations would take many lifetimes, and perhaps an infinity. Because the vastness of being that we all stride through is so much bigger than any one of us, yet is paradoxically contained in each of us, certain legends and myths become crucially important way-showers, bridging the distance between generations far apart in the stream of time. That's why I've had a serious bend towards folklore on the show lately, because I believe we can all benefit from studying any wisdom that's potent enough to persist past the veil of centuries. In light of all this delicious mystery, I am excited to announce today's esteemed guest, who is a scholar, artist, author, and counseling astrologer, just to name a few of her worldly credentials and achievements. Her name is Becca Tarnas, and she's a PhD expert in philosophy and religion, an editor at Archi, the Journal of Archetypal Cosmology, and the author of the book we'll be focusing on today called Journey to the Imaginal Realm, A Reader's Guide to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Yes, 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 you heard me right. Today's show is going to be largely dedicated to what I consider to be one of the greatest works of imagination or fiction in known human history. And although I'm confident that many listeners out there are familiar with Tolkien's epic saga, there are probably few people today who can claim full knowledge of the enormous width and breadth of the mythology that he birthed. That being said, if you are familiar with the film adaptations, you'll definitely get the gist of the Jungian archetypal analysis we're about to get into here. But if you haven't also experienced the literary version, I encourage you to check it out sometime soon. 
There are many excellent audiobook versions you can find on YouTube to help you get through the story if reading isn't an option. But if you do decide to take an unexpected journey to Middle Earth, I recommend you pair it with Becca's book, Journey to the Imaginal Realm, to greatly enhance your understanding and enjoyment of this celebrated tale. Reading Becca's book felt like the deep-end Tolkien conversation I always wanted to have but never could because nobody around me knew the lore or the archetypal symbolism well enough to satisfy my deep curiosity. And although Becca gets up to quite a lot of awesome stuff besides just analyzing Middle-Earth, and we could be discussing it, doing an episode about Tolkien is a personal dream come true for me as a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. (laughs) To kick us off, I'd like to share a short passage from Tolkien that helps us understand his ultimate philosophy about our universe in beautiful verse. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. (laughs) And I think that passage speaks for itself and demonstrates that the Lord of the Rings is not just a story, it's a rite of passage. And since I've been so long in the wind hyping up this conversation that I've been just dying to have, we'd better get to it. (laughs) Everyone make sure to check out the show notes for links to BeccaTarnas.com Journey to the Imaginal Realm, find Becca's social media accounts, and of course, for the link to Interverse Plus on Patreon, where you can get the extended version of this and get the growing Interverse archive by subscribing. That's patreon.com forward slash Interverse. If you have the time and inclination, I'd also love for you to go find Becca online and give her a shout to thank her for being with us today. And now I'd like to initiate this adventure and take a delightful departure to the magnificent realm of Middle-earth with the chief of Tolkien expertise and the awe-inspiring analyzer of archetypes, the one and only Becca Tarnas. Thanks for being here, Becca, and welcome to Interverse. Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful welcome, and I'm really happy to be here. I have craved these kinds of conversations for most of my life as well, and Writing a PhD on Tolkien finally opens up the doorways to being able to have those conversations. Awesome. Yeah, that seems like a good way to do it. (laughs) And you kind of started with what I wanted to begin on, which was more about who you are and your relationship to Tolkien's great works. Well, I was introduced to Tolkien when I was nine years old. My class teacher in fourth grade read us The Hobbit. And it was a really profound experience for me, just this sense of deep familiarity that I felt in hearing about Middle Earth, the descriptions of the places, the names, they were almost like drumbeats, just calling forward this primal sense of familiarity. And I came home and told my mother about how excited I was about this story and the dwarves and the elves and Rivendell and the forests and Mirkwood and the dragon and all of this. And she's like, oh, we'll wait till you read The Lord of the Rings. And I did wait a few years. I was, I think, probably advised by um, maybe my parents or my brother, my older brother, to you know wait a few years. And, and then at 13, that was when I crossed that threshold. And it just reading the Lord of the Rings completely swept me into the world of Middle Earth. And in some ways, I haven't come back out. <laughs> in my late teens, I tried. Um, I thought, you know, it's time to set aside childish things. It's time to move away from fairy story. And 
that just felt like putting on a false persona. And thank goodness I found myself in a graduate school where I had a professor who was interested in the philosophy of imagination, the creative imagination. And he assigned Tolkien's great essay on fairy stories. And that set me on a path of realizing that, wow, I could focus on this in my graduate studies and I could go into the question of what is the imagination? What is the nature of the human imagination? And is it more than what modernity calls you know, just made up, only imaginary? And sure enough, it is. So that was uh, where that journey has taken me thus far. I, don't, I think it's far from over. Man, that's amazing. And I think that we're going to definitely explore that big question of what is the imagination and where all this comes from as we kind of work our way through the books. I don't know if we'll actually work our way through all three books of the trilogy, just because there's so much in each one that you could practically dedicate an episode to each. But in the Fellowship of the Ring, which we'll start on, there's tons of symbolism to get into, possibly some of it accidental, but I don't know if anything's accidental with Tolkien. And the first thing that really stuck out to me in probably chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring was the use of prominent numbers like 111, Bilbo's 111th birthday, Frodo's coming of age at the same time at age 33, and their combining of those numbers for 144. And there's more use of number throughout all the books. In many different instances, certain numbers are seemingly sacred or important. And I wondered what your take on this was as someone who's interested in astrology, which has such a tight-knit relationship to numerology. Definitely, I think that the use of number in Tolkien is intentional. I absolutely agree with you. Nothing in Tolkien's accidental. He has revised and edited and so carefully shaped the material coming through him that if if it is by accident, by the end of the day, he's justified why it's that way, whether it's linguistic, whether it's numerological. Another example you can think of is even before chapter one starts, you have the ring poem where you have three rings for the elven lords. You have seven for the dwarf lords. You have nine for mortal men and the one for the dark lord. And those numbers of three, seven, nine, and one, they also have a, a sacred symbolism to them. And you have a repetition of those numbers as well in one of, one of the more buried poems in the story about what the Numenorians brought out of their sinking island, that they brought seven, stone, seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. And there's three ships for three people. So there's nine ships leaving. So you have that same repetition of numbers, the seven stars, seven stones, the one white tree, the nine ships. And we can look back to, I'm sure there are multiple cultural lineages that we could trace to have a deeper understanding of sacred geometry and numbers. The particular lineage that I stand in as a Western archetypal astrologer is one that draws an understanding of, of number from Pythagoras and that number is not just quantitative, it's qualitative. When you have the one, you have a sense of pure, undifferentiated unity. And 
usually one would think of that as something like a you know sacred or a numinous experience. Think of the Advaita Vedantist experience of you know being one with the whole. But in Tolkien, we see almost a perverse inversion of that. The one of the one ring is actually trying to homogenize and wipe out difference and diversity, the beautiful, multiplicitous expression of, of creation. So you can see both the negative and the positive of the one. Then you can go into the symbolism of the two, of you know the polarity, the duality, that there's a tension between those. We see this in astrology with, with the opposition. When you have an opposition between two planets, like the sun and the moon at the full moon, you know, you can go on the symbolism of the three and how that brings in harmony and balance. And the third breaks the tension and duality of the two. And it it keeps going between four or five. On the one hand, we're we're just counting. If you think of it in a kind of disenchanted quantitative way, but each of those numbers has a sacred archetypal meaning that stands behind it, that lends itself to the meanings in astrology, the meanings in, for example, musical harmonies. And Tolkien's very consciously drawing on that and weaving it into the sacred numbers of his story. That's a great answer. And it's pretty much aligned with the way that I felt about especially the one ring, because <laughs> there's really no one of anything in nature. There's many humans, there's many trees, there's many everything. But the hero paradoxically individuates itself and becomes a unique one. And that's a symbol, like that's the positive element of the one. By doing so, the hero becomes a representation of the highest one, which is the totality of the universe. And there's lots of stories where you can see the like the negative side of the one, not just the one ring where, like you said, Sauron wants to homogenize and basically supplant the chief of the gods or like the the supreme deity and become that himself. And the Matrix is a great example, which has, <laughs> interestingly enough, the character I'm thinking of the Matrix, Agent Smith, is also played by one of the holders of the three rings, one of the wise characters, Elrond. And anyway, Agent Smith does the same exact thing. He basically copies himself onto everybody. If, if you've seen the later Matrix movies and tries to turn everyone into himself. And so, yeah, that's sort of like what the, that's what the dark side of the one is about. It's really interesting that this deeper, not mythology, but archetypal truth and it is actually part of mythology too, because we, I mean, we get this from Greek philosophy and they had other, there's other things in Greek philosophy that come through in Tolkien's work. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about something that's lesser known to maybe some Lord of the Rings fans, which is the foundational mythology that Middle Earth is actually standing upon, because it's not just the one story of Frodo's quest to destroy the ring. It's also all these other stories that are layered through multiple ages of so-called imaginary time. And one of the most interesting ones is the myth of Atlantis. <laughs> he basically includes the myth of Atlantis in the Lord of the Rings backstory. And I think that it's plausible that humanity remembers this event in legends because it reflects something true, or at the very least, it's an example of a psychological metaphor where the sea obscures 
and represents the deep unconscious of the collective human memory, where for as much as we know, we've forgotten an infinity. So <laughs> there's also a connection to dreams here, and we can maybe talk about Tolkien's dreams involving this too, but tell us a little bit about how the myth of Atlantis shows up in the deeper story of the Lord of the Rings. Well, as you pointed toward, Tolkien did have this very powerful dream. He called it his great wave dream, and he did sometimes call it his Atlantis haunting or his Atlantis complex was a way he referred to it later in his life, where I think he's actually probably consciously drawing on psychological and probably Jungian psychological language. But again, that's that's much later in his life after he's already been writing about this for decades. But Tolkien said that beginning from a young age, probably around age seven, he began to have this recurring dream of a great wave that would come in over the land and would drown the landscape. And he would wake up from the dream kind of gasping in deep water. And he later said in a couple of his letters that the dream was eventually exercised by writing about it. And he indeed wrote about it again and again. He had he'd already been writing about Middle Earth for a couple decades. He first started writing some of the earliest myths of Middle Earth in uh, you know, beginning in the, the 19 teens, concurrent with the First World War. But it was actually in the mid-1930s, so around the time that The Hobbit was published, that he and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, they were close friends, so C.S. Lewis, probably best known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia, Till We Have Faces, a number of his Christian apologetics, his space trilogy, they made an agreement because Lewis said to Tolkien, there aren't enough of the kinds of stories that we really like. So, you know, maybe we should sit down and write them. And so Lewis took on writing a space travel story, and that became his space trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. And Tolkien took on a time travel narrative. It's called The Lost Road. He never finished it. And it starts off describing a young man and his father, who sound an awful lot like Tolkien himself, actually, with the particular interests of this character and, you know, drawn toward language. And he's describing languages coming through. He's inventing languages, this character. But a lot of the things that this character is describing sound an awful lot of what we know, like what we know about Tolkien's early experiences with writing languages, inventing them, different elvish languages. So, he seems to be tucking into the story, The Lost Road, maybe some hints toward what his own experience was with language. And the place that the story ends up, the, the time travel narrative, it moves back through successive generations of this father-son pairing, all the way back to the drowning of Numenor. And Numenor is Tolkien's name for essentially Atlantis, the great island civilization that drowns in this destructive wave, the one that he had been dreaming about already for decades. It seems that writing and not finishing The Lost Road wasn't enough to exercise that dream. He kept having it. He, at that time, had started writing The Lord of the Rings, but as he was about halfway through composing that story, he was probably mid-writing The Two Towers, and he set that down for a bit and started writing another story, this one called the Notion Club Papers. 
And the Notion Club Papers is another story that Tolkien never finished. This one starts off off in Oxford with a literary group of uh, Oxford dons and friends that sounds an awful lot like the Inklings, which was a literary group that Tolkien was part of with C.S. Lewis and Lewis's brother, Warney, and the philosopher Owen Barfield, the novelist Charles Williams, and several other members. And this story, again, it kind of starts off as almost mocking um, the dialogue that the Inklings would have with each other. You can kind of pick out who might be who. Um, But then this, too, takes a kind of a weird turn and time rips open and two of the characters find themselves simultaneously in Oxford and at the drowning of Numenor. There's all these fascinating um, kind of synchronicities around that real world synchronicities that connect to a prediction that's made in the story of a great flood that happens in 1987. Now this Tolkien's writing in the forties turns out that there was a great storm that happened in England in 1987, long after Tolkien had died. His son, Christopher Tolkien, was the one who actually identified that it was pretty interesting that his father had predicted this storm in his story and that it actually happened in 1987. So there's some kind of amazing numinous aura around the Notion Club papers. Again, not finished. For people who are interested in reading it, you have to get volume nine of the history of Middle-earth, which is called Morgoth's Ring. And it's one of the sections in there. It isn't published on its own, but if I could petition a publisher, I would say, please publish the Notion Club papers so folks can read it. So this is my roundabout way of saying that Tolkien kept writing about the drowning of Numenor, which was his Atlantis story. And eventually what happened was he did weave it in to the telling of the Lord of the Rings. And it's mentioned by Faramir, it's alluded to by other characters, and that it's in some ways a, a trauma that stands behind the people of Gondor and uh, Aragorn's people, for example. That is his lineage that Um, It was their civilization that was on this island that was drowned. And there's a whole backstory of why it was that the people of Numenor rose up against the powers of the world, the gods, because they wanted immortality. So it's a story of hubris, pride, and then the fall, which seems to be very much connected to the stories around Atlantis that we get through other streams. We can read about it in, in Plato's. Timaeus, for example, to get one of the tellings of the myth of Atlantis in that way. That entire dream cycle and how it kept coming up in different stories until it became part of the foundational history of Middle Earth. I find that so fascinating. And I remember you pointing out in your book that at the time when he wrote that Faramir was having this dream that was actually his dream, which happens in the third book, The Return of the King, that he actually stopped having the dream. And it was like exercise from him there. Finally, it almost was like it found its place. <laughs> it does seem that Faramir was the true dreamer of that dream or, or something like that. Tolkien did find out later that his own son, Michael, uh, one of his four children, inherited the dream. And he had this intuition that he could never test, but he talked about it a few times, that maybe he inherited the dream from his own parents. He thought that perhaps there was something ancestral here that he was taking in, hence the father-son pairing in 
the lost road. There, there's a deep fascination for him in subjects that border very closely on reincarnation and inherited memory, but he never quite goes there. He always takes a step or two back, which is something I love about Tolkien. He never totally goes there, but he just keeps you right on the edge of, is that what he's actually talking about? Yeah, he leaves it up to you to decide. But when it comes to the fact that there was that great storm, which was one of the biggest storms ever in England in 1987, only a few months off from when it happened in his fictional story, that seems to suggest, along with a lot of other evidence that you can glean from reading his works closely, that the imagination is actually something real. It's not a fabrication that you could possibly use the imagination as a lens to see the past or the future. And certainly it can inform you about the present. As we're talking about Numenor, the concept in The Lord of the Rings is that this was a, a sort of blessed by the gods type of realm because men had proven themselves worthy in a, the original great war against the dark god Morgoth. And then their fall, as you alluded to, came from essentially falling to worshiping this dark lord. And there's a very intricate story and i mean he goes through lists of every king's name and all their offspring and it's like reading the bible if you get into the appendixes <laughs> but since we're talking about the blessed realm so to speak we're, we're also talking about the fairy the fairy realm and that's something that was an important concept to tolkien throughout his entire life and in your book you mentioned that tolkien actually made a painting called the Halls of Manway on the Mountains of the World Above Fairy. And I Googled it and I found this gorgeous image of the mountain with a halo of light around the peak. And it calls to mind the occult symbol of the all-seeing eye above the pyramid, but in maybe a less uh, negative context. And like we heavily, we nowadays we heavily associate that, that symbol with dark occultism and the top-down rulership of humanity by tyrannical forces. But I think he was depicting the symbol in its more original meaning. And I think if you explained the creation myth and the music of the Ainur, which is something you wouldn't find anywhere really other than the Silmarillion or other side texts that Tolkien created, I think you could also be explaining the positive nature of the all seeing eye imagery. If you get what I'm getting at. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I hadn't ever thought of that peak Tanaquetil, that's the name of the mountain peak in that image. And for listeners, I do highly recommend looking up this painting of Tolkien's. It's from 1928, his book of Ishness uh, sketchbook. And the light at the top is actually the hallowed light of the home of the gods Manwe and Varda. And so that light, it is true that Manwe and Varda, they can hear and see. Those are their, their gifts, their powers. They can hear further and see at greater distance than any other beings in the world. And that's how they, they keep watch as the powers of good over the world. But part of why they are keeping watch, of course, is because there is this is a guarded realm. The reason the mountain is so high is because it's part of a great wall protecting fairy protecting the blessed realm. And there's one other thing I want to draw your attention to with that image that's just extraordinary. On one side of the mountain, you see the sun and it's bright daylight. 
on on one side. And then on the other side, you have the crescent moon. And if you're looking at this image at first, it's like, okay, there's the sun and the crescent moon. But then you realize that the, the crescent of the moon itself is bending away from the sun. That the moon in this depiction of fairy is not actually illuminated by the light of the sun. It's shining with its own crescent light. Now that's not something that happens in the primary world. We have a gorgeous crescent moon right now as we're speaking. It'll be visible when the sun sets, but that's a crescent moon illuminated by the light of the sun. This is different. And that points to the two great lights of fairy, that they're independent, the solar and the lunar, and the archetypal principles connected to the solar and lunar. They each have their own equal power in the realm of fairy. So that's something that Tolkien painted in this image without any explanation, not discussing it. And yet you can see it right there. Oh, this, this is an other world. And that higher realm is situated in the liminal space between the lunar and solar. It is a balance of the two, which I think is a clue as to how we access this higher realm of the imaginal, which is through acts of balancing our own left and right sides and coming into a place of stillness where we can actually kind of hear that quiet voice within. Mm, definitely. Well, to to unpack the the creation myth that you brought up, the Ainulindale. Yeah, I love this. <laughs> this is the beginning of the world, the cosmogony that Tolkien wrote. And he first wrote this in 1919. And it's amazing to think about the inspired moment when someone sits down to write a creation myth. And he wasn't the only person who was writing a cosmogony around that time. Carl Jung was writing his own, The Seven Sermons to the Dead, just three years earlier in 1916. So there's something coming through here. Also very incredible, very incredible script right there. Definitely. And there are a lot of parallels between the two, between the two creation myths. It's really quite extraordinary. Were they in touch with each other? Not at all. Amazing. To take a little tangent, this is what I wrote my dissertation on, was these parallels between Jung's Red Book, which he created during that time, starting in 1913, and Tolkien's Red Book of Westmarch, which the first stories he started writing around that time, 1911 was when he started doing the first drawings in the Book of Ishness. And all these many, many parallels between the two Red Books that unfolded. They did not know each other at all. They never met. Later in Tolkien's life, so probably by the 40s, 50s, he certainly would have known of Jung just because Jung's ideas were quite popular in the intellectual circles that Tolkien was in. We do know that he jotted his name down and uh, some notes for his essay on fairy stories, although he never included anything about Jung in any of his writings. So we know there's some familiarity, but that's not in 19, you know, 19 when he's writing these things that are in extraordinary parallel to Jung. And that in itself is really those parallels between their works and the number of synchronicities that cannot be explained by external influence. That's really what opened up the idea for me that the imagination is actually something that gives us access to a real place, the imaginal realm that is not physical. It is not simply abstract. It is most definitely not made up, but it is maybe participatory, co-creative, something that we 
enact, interact with, and elicit forward. And we can uh, see discussions of this in Sufism, for example, in Neoplatonism and Gnosticism, all of these uh, esoteric uh, branches of spiritual traditions and religions point towards something like this, that the imagination is in many ways the, the via regia to spiritual experience, to an encounter with the divine. So speaking of that encounter with the divine and coming back to that creation myth, the Ainu Lindale, the music of the Ainur, is the story of the world's creation. It's singing into being. So Tolkien begins with the one God, Iluvatar, and the one God brings forth, Tolkien calls them the offspring of his thought. These are the Ainur. You can think of them somewhat like angels, these beings that are emanated from the one God. And Eru or Iluvatar propounds them to make a great music. He gives them the theme, but he invites them to adorn that theme however they wish, with their voices, with their musical instruments. And so this extraordinary music begins to fill the halls of Manway and the sound echoes out into the darkness of the void. Because before this singing, the the light of being, what's called the secret fire of being in reality is within Iluvatar alone. But then there is this great void of darkness where Iluvatar hasn't turned the light of his face. And so in some ways we can see that like a static duality that there is this darkness of the void and the light of Iluvatar. But they aren't yet in relationship. They aren't at odds. And to draw on an idea from the Gnostic scholar Lance Owens, we could think of the void as being something like Iluvatar's shadow. It's a very kind of Jungian idea, looking at his answer to Job, for example. So there's one of the Ainur whose name is Melkor. And he has wandered in the void because he's seeking the secret fire, because he wants more than anything to be able to create reality and being just like the God who created him. And isn't that something that maybe we can sympathize with? We are creators as well. And so this is his desire. And so he brings into the music, not an adornment of Iluvatar's theme, but his own theme. And in doing that, immediately discord and disharmony arises. It clashes with the theme. And then some of the other Ainur become confused and start singing and making music with him. And there's these two musics that are at odds with each other. And so this continues to play out where Iluvatar brings in another theme. And the clash gets even greater. And then Iluvatar brings in a third theme. And this one starts to take the disharmony of Melkor's theme and weave it into its own. So it takes the most triumphant notes of Melkor's disharmony and brings it into this d- slow, deep sadness of the third theme. And as these two musics are becoming one and creating this tension and balance, then Iluvatar in one final chord brings the entire composition to an end. And it is from that moment on 
that the Ainur get to see what it is they've created because Iluvatar then reveals to them, this wasn't just music only. He gives them a vision and they realize this music was in some ways the, the plan, the blueprint for a world and they see the vision of that world. But then they realize that even that vision doesn't yet exist and that the world now has to be built. And so many of them commit to entering into the world and building it according to the music and according to the vision. And Melkor sees the way in which his disharmony brought extremes. So the extreme of intense heat and fire or the extreme of intense cold. And that's how we have you know, the raging fires and volcanoes. That's how we have cold ice and snow as it interacts with the other creations of the other Ainur, like water. And apparently water is what carries the sound, the original sound of that great music. And so when we hear the singing of the sea, that sound is our memory of the great music at the beginning of time. And so the reason we feel that longing at the, the edge of the sea and that calling for the sea is because we're remembering creation when we hear it. So all of the Ainur enter into, or some of them enter into the world. They become the Valar, the powers of the world, and they build the world. And Melkor has, there's one very key piece here before they go into the world where Melkor is spoken to by Iluvatar and he, Iluvatar says that the disharmony that you have brought in actually has its uttermost source in me. No matter how much anyone tries to deviate from me, bringing in your own creation, ultimately it redounds to my glory and makes the creation all the more wonderful, all the more beautiful. So basically, Iluvatar is taking responsibility for this disharmony and saying that the suffering of the world is actually creating a greater sense of beauty and wonder than if there was no suffering in the world. Extraordinary statement. But what Melkor feels in that moment, because he tried to independently create and failed, and that really this is just part of the larger plan of Iluvatar, is he feels secret shame. You can think of this a little like the parent shaming the child for trying to be like them. And from that secret shame comes a secret anger. And that's what turns Melkor onto the path of becoming eventually the Dark Lord, who gets renamed Morgoth, who becomes, is simply the foresire in some ways of Sauron, who is the form of evil we meet in the Lord of the Rings. So I find that lineage to be interesting. Because in some ways, Tolkien does point toward, and I think really held the belief that evil was a reality. It was as much a reality as good. It wasn't a privatio boni, an absence of the good. But on the other hand, when you look at that key part of the creation myth, the source of that is really shame and anger. And how much can we trace in our own world suffering to a sense of disconnection or being shamed, maybe in our own childhood, maybe in um, some earlier part of our ancestral trauma. So uh, there's something really profound there that 
I think is extremely important to look at the role of shame in evil acts and how that ripples through the ages. Wow. <laughs> it's so, there's so much to digest with that cosmogony. And it's probably, to me, like more beautiful and succinct than any origin myth I've heard from around the world, although it echoes a lot of them. I think that's part of what makes Tolkien so valuable is that he was putting that in a language that is most accessible to us in modern times and in our in our language of English, actually. And speaking of awareness, I kind of think that the secret fire that you alluded to that was the source or the manifestation of Iluvatar's power is actually awareness itself because the the void or the shadow was simply the parts of existence that he had not yet turned his face towards, which is another way of saying placing attention towards. And I think that also contains a seed of a great wisdom for us in our, in our individual lives, which is that the only thing that makes the shadow or the darkness frightening or threatening is that we don't know what it is. And whenever we can place our attention on it with honesty, we can see where it lives in us, which also makes it, it disarms it in a, in a way. And I, also think that to add to your analysis of what of of shame being sort of at the root of evil, you could also maybe connect it to the impatience of an immature child that wants to do wants to drive their dad's truck, even though they're six years old. I myself did that one time when I was like four or five. I put a put a vehicle in neutral and backed out of a driveway and luckily it didn't really hit anything. But you know, that's a destructive thing if you're playing with powers that you don't yet understand or just don't plain don't have the capacity to work with. And in a strange way, Melkor actually does get his wish to be a, a creator of sorts. But what we find with evil all throughout The Lord of the Rings and in many great stories is that it actually ends up not being able to create so much as only twist and change or pervert that which is already created evil tends to be more of a scavenger than a source and that's a something to keep in mind for ourselves too as artists who must scavenge things from other sources to put them together in new synthesis but to realize that the <laughs> the imagination is something something more than just picking up pieces that you find in the world and trying to cobble them together and that's sort of the hallmark of any demiurge type character is that he's uh, riveting things together and trying to hold it all in place, even though it's not meant to be in, in a sense. But man, there's so many places we could go from here. <laughs> I think that maybe a good well, we're not even talking about the uh, Fellowship of the Ring as much as I, I want. Not that we're doing anything wrong. This is all perfect. But there's just like an entire trilogy of books that we could go through part by part and really pick through. But I do want to mention something that you brought in your book that I thought was a really, really useful concept, which is a similarity between the poet Samuel Coleridge and Tolkien, the concept of the primary and secondary imagination. I think if you could help us understand this concept and help flesh out the, the perspective that imagination isn't 
a way of thinking, but that thinking is actually a form of imagination. And so are all other forms of mental processes from reason to emotion to perception. All of these are actually a form of imagination. And I, I would love it. Actually, I'll even quote from your book here that you say, Coleridge defined the primary imagination as follows. The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent of all human perception and as a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. So that's a tough quote. It's a very chewy one. And I'd love it if you could help us kind of grasp this concept and see how we can apply it to our lives as creators. It's such a beautiful concept that Coleridge brings forward. And that's from his Biographia Literaria, which is a very interesting book. And there's basically just a page and a half on the primary and secondary imagination. So relatively small. And one can spend literally years with those page, that page and a half. And really, I feel like every time I hear that quote, um, I both learn more and question myself. Do I really, do I really know what Coleridge was trying to say? And he differentiates the primary imagination from the secondary imagination, and then differentiates both of those from what he calls fancy. And this is basically the primary imagination to to unpack that particular statement is the the imagination of God, of the divine. And that the reason it's the the organ of perception of all human perception is because everything that we perceive in the world, all of creation, that is the creation of the divine imagination or of the primary imagination. And our encounter with that, that is the repetition in the finite mind. So that's our finite mind. It's the repetition within that of the infinite creativity of God, the infinite I am is referring to, uh, to God. And so really the, it is the, the world as is, and as we perceive, that's the primary imagination. The secondary imagination, Coleridge is careful to say that the difference between primary and secondary is simply one in degree and not in kind, meaning that they are not, throw a big word in here, ontologically different. They are not different in their essence, but rather the secondary imagination is a lesser degree. So you can think of the primary imagination as God's imagination. You can think of the secondary imagination as the human being's imagination. It takes the primary and it reshapes it. It pieces it together in new ways to bring forward new creative form. And so really what happens when a human artist, author, etc. engages in a creative act, it's actually not just the human being as a creator, but actually the primary imagination of God coming through us, coming through our own creative expression. Now, he differentiates both of those from what he calls fancy. Fancy, I think maybe the best way to describe it is fancy is what we consider as being simply made up, 
you know, when you're just kind of making something up, you're telling a white lie or a fib, or you're kind of making up a story that you don't have the sense that this is coming through you in an artistic, creative sense. You're simply putting the pieces together, but it hasn't been given the breath of life. That's the difference between fancy in Coleridge's terminology and the primary and secondary imagination. Now, Tolkien uses these ideas in his essay on fairy stories. Wonderful essay. I highly recommend reading the whole thing. But if you really want to get into his philosophy of imagination, it's in the section titled Fantasy. And he never names Coleridge here, but he is definitely pointing towards these same ideas. But he makes it confusing because as a philologist, he disagrees with how Coleridge used terms. He kind of wanted to redeem the word fancy because it's a degraded form of the word fantasy. Tolkien really wanted to redeem the word fantasy because that was one of the primary terms that it meant a great deal to him. So he articulated something that conceptually is about the same as what Coleridge is saying, but it just uses a bunch of different words. So makes it a little confusing in terms of terminology, but we're getting at the same point. And I actually think that Tolkien's way of describing this is a little bit more accessible than Coleridge. The way Tolkien speaks of it is this theory of subcreation. And you can tell right in that title, subcreation, that this is really connected to what we were talking about, what you were bringing up before, too, of when we are creating something, it kind of needs that secret fire, that spark of life and being reality that's granted to it by something beyond us as human creators. So for Tolkien, subcreation comes in two parts. The first part it, he calls imagination, with a capital I. This is the image-making faculty. So this is where the images simply arise from. You can basically equate that with Coleridge's primary imagination. So the images arise within us. I think most people have access to this kind of experience. Daydream, reverie, dream itself, although we're in a very passive position there. But images simply come to human beings. Where do they come from? So they arise through us. And then there's step two. And this is the really important part for Tolkien, because this is what he calls the sub-creative art. It's taking that primary image and it's shaping it. So in the same way that you're going to sculpt clay or you're going to take paint and make it into a painting, you take the primary images and you craft them with words, with paint, with sculpting tools, whatever your artist's modality is. And that becomes the sub-creative art. So imagination plus art, the result is a sub-creation. And if there's a particular quality of wonder and strangeness to it, well, that brings in another layer that Tolkien calls fantasy. Now, Tolkien has about somewhere between five and 10,000 different definitions of fantasy. So it's a little bit challenging to pin him down on that one. But essentially, fantasy is both that quality of strangeness and wonder in the subcreative art, and it's also the subcreative art itself. That's why the genre of fantasy literature is called that, because 
the result is a fantasy. But we have to remember a fantasy for Tolkien isn't something that's made up. It's something that has organically emerged through one and actually been discovered and then shaped and honed by the artist into something that can then be experienced by someone else. And so when we sit down and we open the Lord of the Rings and start reading, we are entering into the art that Tolkien has so carefully shaped and crafted and edited and chosen every single word so carefully. And we are passing into an experience of primary images that arose through him. So we too can enter into that world as he did. And it's that combination that I think really creates that, that sense when you experience some kind of artwork, whether a story or painting or film or poem, where some part of your soul says, this is true. And you can't necessarily rationally pin down why, but you know this is true. And I think that that is connecting to that primary imagination as Coleridge described it. And that's what we intuitively feel in response to it, is that sense that there is truth here. Right. That actually, you kind of answered what my next question was going to be, which was about another word that Tolkien likes to bandy about, which is enchantment which I take to mean, at least in his context, is that feeling of being absorbed in this reverie or in this fantasy to the point where both the author and readers can have a palpable yet mutually sensible access to fairy dramas and other worlds and realms that feel real. I think that's the <laughs> the biggest mystery that we can kind of talk about, but just like, just like uh, I guess, God or this, you know, the the totality and and the infinite, we can't exactly fully peg down what it is that allows for this enchantment element to take place. Because I think anyone that's a voracious reader will have to agree that some stories just don't measure up the way other stories do. And w why one person's a more suitable conduit for enchantment than another, I couldn't exactly say. But I do find it interesting that Tolkien basically considered literature to be the best medium for creation because in a very fractal sense, he became the God of an entire world of his own imagining. And it really makes one think about the whole logos concept and the genesis of the world being spoken or in his context, sung into existence. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have a question in all that, but maybe you can give a little bit more of a take on what, what leads to the enchantment as opposed to just reading some words. Well, and there is something that I would want to say about Tolkien in relation to his stories and the world of Middle Earth. And I think, I doubt he would have seen himself as a god in relation to that world. No. <laughs> I, I actually wonder if he might have seen himself more as, as a witness and as a keeper of records. And that's very much how he positions himself in terms of how all the stories are transmitted. He describes himself at the beginning and the end of The Lord of the Rings as simply the translator of this work. Now, we could just take that as him making something up, fancy, pretending. It's a conceit, a nice literary conceit to make the world seem real. But he uses that motif over and over again, not just with the Lord of the Rings, but all of the stories of Middle-earth, where 
it's very important to him to include how the story came to us and that there are always the record keepers and the people who pass on the books. And, and that's why there's this important piece of the Red Book of Westmarch, which starts off as Bilbo's diary, essentially the Hobbit that he wrote down, and then gets passed on to Frodo, who writes in his experience in The Lord of the Rings passes it on to Sam, who finishes out the story. They tag on Bilbo's translations from the Elvish. So yes, that may be just a literary conceit, but I do think that Tolkien didn't feel like he had the control of a god in relation to this creation, but rather he was coming in at that second stage as the artist, as the historian, as the linguist, and getting it all down. And that if we're needing to look to a God who is part of this, we actually need to look at Tolkien's own belief in God. He was a devout Catholic and that his relationship to the divine was intimately connected to his relationship to creativity. And that by doing such creative work of writing fantasy, he actually felt that that such work was uh, adding to the efflorescence of creation, carrying God's work forward. That's an extraordinary belief. So that's why I feel like in some ways he wouldn't have seen himself as the God of Middle Earth. And he even said in one place that the God of men and the God of elves is the same God. And he's pointing to the same God that he himself holds belief in and I think had spiritual experiences in relation to as well. Man, that's such a good answer. It really made some stuff click for me too, because just coincidentally, I worded that statement that he was like sort of a God of the, of middle earth by creating it. But you're right. He does constantly refer to the fact that he was just witnessing it. He was just along for the ride. It was what you could call a flow state and that he didn't have, he didn't even know how things were going to wind up turning out at Mount Doom until Frodo and Sam and Gollum got there. So maybe what you just described actually can tell us more about Melkor's folly, the original dark God, and that his, I, what he thought he was doing, to, what he thought imitating Iluvatar meant was to be the micromanaging creator of every little thing, Whereas what Iluvatar was really doing was just turning his gaze upon the void and looking upon the shadow and transforming it through the light of sight and through the light of imagination and perception. And so the difference is very clear that even in his cosmogony, the ultimate creator being wasn't really doing anything more than just seeing and singing what he was seeing, singing what he was seeing. And that's what Tolkien basically does with how he extracts the story of the Lord of the Rings from the imaginal realm. That's quite an interesting, quite an interesting connection there uh, that he was recalling it as if from within rather than meticulously articulating it. And he put his, and as you talked about with subcreation involving the art, the artist, he did polish it with his artistry and with his philology and to an amazing degree, but in, in a sense, what it all contained and what it all meant was already there. And he was just exploring it. I think that's an amazing, amazing connection there. <laughs> that's a really beautiful way of describing it, that 
Iluvatar is singing what he sees and Tolkien too is singing what he sees. And, and I think that that can be something maybe that anyone who identifies an, as an artist or, you know, I always want to go beyond that idea that I, I think we're all artists, that living life is in itself an art, but that there's a form of surrender here. If we're wanting to bring some creative form to birth, I'm, you know, in the same way that a child is grown within a womb, the mother and the father aren't controlling the step-by-step development of that child. It's simply unfolding and happening according to this beautiful organic divine mystery. And I think the same is true with any work of art, that it has its own agency and that the artist is more like the, in some ways you could think of like the midwife, but also like, you know, the mother who's holding the container, the sacred womb, the gestation period and being present and taking care of it. But really that that creative work of art isn't something that we can meticulously control every detail of. And to take the, that pressure off in some ways of maybe trying to come up with just the right concept or trying to control it when really it's more about surrendering and letting it come through in, in the right time, in the right moment. And maybe it's those works of art, those ones that where the artist themselves describes, I don't know, it just simply came through me. And there are countless artists and authors who describe their creative experience in just that way, that I just discovered it. It just was moving through me at the time. There's something divine involved there that that chooses the right time to be born. And, you know, we can have a sense maybe of the quality of that time through a kind of practice like astrology, for example. But there's something beyond our own human control that that's really at work. And, and maybe that's really a part of, to come back to your question, the enchantment, that the enchantment lies in what is inherently beyond us. We as creators are actually along for the journey as much as, you know, everyone else in the story. And it, it really is more of a process of, of discovery. I got to let you go. You got to tell people where they can find you and where they can get your book and everything else that you do that we didn't even talk about because we were so absorbed in this enchanted world. Also, just big thanks for having this conversation with me. I've been looking forward to it for weeks and it did not even slightly disappoint. It's amazing. Oh, well, it was such a pleasure getting to have this conversation with you as well. And I'm so curious what your other questions were. And so if it does work out for us to continue at some point, I would love that. And so in terms of where people can find more of what I offer, my website is just my name, BeccaTarnas.com. And that has a very large collection of uh, writing and essays and articles and videos and podcasts and lots of fun things all all put together. There's information there too about my astrological counseling practice, which is the primary work that I do other than being a graduate school adjunct professor. And the book Journey to the Imaginal Realm is published by Revelor Press. And there's a link there on my website as well under publications, but you could also probably just find it by going to a search engine, looking up Revelor Press and Journey to the Imaginal Realm, and you will find it. I think any Lord of the Rings fan would absolutely love the book. 
And because you're already doing quite a bit of work to read the Lord of the Rings, not that it's like work that's not fun or displeasurable. One thing that's a positive about the book is it's very concise. I like that about it. It it doesn't feel like you're having to slog through a lot to get the gems out of your book. It is it's perfectly well balanced between concise and detailed and leaves plenty of room for the reader to make more connections on their own in their mind between things that you don't necessarily talk about in the book and just all around awesome, awesome stuff. And this has been a great time and everybody go find Becca online, get a copy of this book if you're a Lord of the Rings nerd, which you must be if you stay with us this long. And (laughs) (laughs) thanks for being here with us. Thank you as well. friends that is a wrap on that interview although i'd like to hope that we're going to do a part two or even maybe a part three because i barely touched my notes on this one a lot of stuff came up organically and we just generally didn't explore the narrative beat by beat the way we probably could have which would make a really interesting chat there's so many things that happen throughout the story that you really can't contain it all in two hours. I mean, the audiobooks themselves, if you combine them all, who knows how long that would be, probably in the vicinity of 30 plus hours, if I had to guess. It's huge. It took me like two weeks of constant listening just to re-hear it all. But the audiobook is really fun and I would recommend it. There's a version that's like got voice actors that sound really similar to, or maybe they really are the same people (laughs) that are the movie actors, which is cool. They work in the soundtrack from the movie, which is incredible. And there's even sound effects and it gives this really immersive feel. But even if you're just listening to an audiobook recreation where it's just one person reading to you, that's still amazing because this story really fits the mold for the oral transmission of a tale. It just something about the language. It still sweeps you into this world and gives you that sense of enchantment like we were talking about whether you're reading it or listening to it. And definitely don't be intimidated by how long it is. Once you get pretty deep into it, you're going to be like just counting the time until you're able to get back to Middle Earth and finish the story. And by the time you get to the end, you're going to be sad that it's over. You're going to wish it was longer. (laughs) Luckily for people like that, there are a lot of auxiliary tales and things that were compiled by the recently deceased Christopher Tolkien, the son of J.R.R. Tolkien, including entire histories of Middle Earth and other cycles of legends that he that his father created and never published. And Christopher was able to publish those posthumously. And probably the world lost the number one expert on Tolkien when Christopher Tolkien passed away. And I think it would be great if more of us could carry that torch forward because this is an unprecedentedly beautiful story. And I 
have yet to encounter anything that quite has that same level of gravity as Lord of the Rings does. And I read quite a bit and I love lots of different fantasy thingies, you know. But before I go any further, I've just got to mention what a great guest Becca was. She's definitely a top quality podcast surfer. And if you like her, you can find her on tons of other shows that she's been on by going to her website. She's definitely easy to listen to. And I imagine that any students that she's had, especially about Tolkien, are very lucky indeed, especially if they didn't know what they're getting into before they took her class. If it's anything like her book, then it's a really awesome class. Please go check out her book if you are even remotely interested. If you're going to be getting into Lord of the Rings for the first time or revisiting it after hearing this podcast because you are curious after the things we've talked about, her book is going to be crucial. I mean, it's such a dense thing that if you're not familiar with Tolkien's world already, the first time you get into it, there's going to be a lot of names and references that you're going to have to form memories about before you can actually understand them. And so it's one of those books that requires multiple readings if you're going to really, really get the juice out of it. But even just one reading is worthwhile. And if you have some familiarity with the story because you've watched the movies, then the books are going to give you that much more enjoyment for sure. So Becca's awesome. Go to BeccaTarnas.com, find all the cool things she does. And I'm very curious about the archetypal astrology that she gets done for people. I've never heard of archetypal astrology specifically, and I'm definitely curious about it. I hope that this is the beginning of multiple visits for Becca to the show, because there are many things besides Lord of the Rings that we could probably talk about, although I'm sure it'll all revolve around a lot of the themes that we talked about this time. We definitely explored archetypes and psychology more than I may be expected to, which is great. I think that overall, this episode came out being a little more accessible to someone who's not necessarily familiar with The Lord of the Rings than I thought it might be, probably because we didn't do what I initially thought we might do, which was a beat-by-beat exploration of events from the story. So we will do that next time, and hopefully you'll have had time to digest the tale once again before that. But there's so much about that tale that gives us this feeling of enchantment and immersion and a relatability, despite the fact that it's fantasy. First of all, I mentioned in the intro that we recorded that talk on Leap Day, and that's kind of a liminal day in and of itself. It is only occurring between every four years and otherwise doesn't exist. So it's like it's a day and it's not a day at the same time, which is sort of what something that's liminal is. It's in between. And being that it's February 29th, or right now, as I'm recording this intro, it's March 2nd, we're actually right in the time of year that the chief events of the Lord of the Rings story take place. Although the story does cover many years from the beginning to the end, the real meat of the story and the real action is only a few months of time. So it all happens really quick. But what's cool about it is that Tolkien makes it immersive by grounding the story with dates seasons, and even the cycles of the moon. So that at one point, one of the characters will be looking up at the moon and he'll see it in a certain phase. And then later in the story, you'll have flashed back to what a different character was doing at that same time. And they'll look up and see that same moon. It'll give you a feel of when different events are happening concurrently with each other. And that's another thing about the story is it's not just one hero and it's not just an external story of action and war. 
It's also the story of an internal journey and an internal transformation for all the characters. And we didn't really talk about this, but she brings it up in her book, Becca does, that the way that Lord of the Rings is structured with six books, technically, the three books, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King are actually all two-parters. They're divided into two sections. And you could say that the first book of each of the three and the second book of each of the three represent the outer and the inner journey for the characters. And that's it's pretty amazing. It's very much got the whole solar lunar thing going on all throughout it. It's very alchemical. And the fact that the heroes of the tale or the ones that we're most identified with, which are the hobbits, are these small everyday type people who have to somehow oppose the Lord of Darkness, Sauron. Well, I think that that is quite a relatable conundrum because when we look at the things that are happening in the world right now that we might feel powerless against, it is as if, it's as if that there's a dragon out there that needs to be slain and we can't do it ourselves. And in the story, Lord of the Rings, nobody even fights the Dark Lord Sauron. I think that's really interesting. There's not, never a, a battle scene like you would see in almost any other fantasy or adventure or hero's journey tale where they go up against the main villain and in single combat, the hero destroys him or something. That never happens. And even in The Hobbit, it's the same way. Bilbo travels to the Lonely Mountain. There's this horrible dragon smog there, but he never fights the dragon or kills the dragon. And in both cases, the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, the heroes, Bilbo and Frodo, are actually only able to destroy or defeat evil. They don't even destroy the evil itself. They're only able to defeat evil by remaining uncorruptible by the evil. And what that takes the form of is in the fact that they retain their decency. They retain the things about them, the little things that are what make them good people, I guess. When they return to the Shire, they go right back into the etiquette and the culture and doing the small daily things, taking care of the garden that they need to do to keep a good life going. And so this is something the podcaster Gordon White, I've heard him talk about. He has a show called Rune Soup, and there's probably at least one Lord of the Rings episode on his podcast, if you find that interesting. Gordon talks about how the acts of compassion of Bilbo and Frodo in not slaying Gollum are the thing that is the ultimate downfall of the Dark Lord. That and the fact that neither Bilbo or Frodo or Sam, for that matter, because Sam takes the ring for a time, are able to be corrupted by the ring because they don't desire power. And so in a way, the evil, which is Sauron, he destroys himself by putting his power into the ring. He destroys himself by trying to create this thing that will give him ultimate power over others. And the fact that he can't conceive of anyone being able to give up that power or destroy that power because he's so obsessed with it is what ends up spelling his doom. So all throughout the Lord of the Rings, there's this really awesome theme of evil destroying itself. And I think that that's definitely a really important thing to keep in mind that like, it's not up to us to slay the dragon or defeat the dark Lord. It's up to us to maintain the small acts of goodness and kindness and decency that we're capable of doing because those small things are what create the big picture. And that's where our real power is at, not in power over other people. It's self-mastery. I've said it a million times, but 
Freedom is self-mastery. And I guess I should probably, because I'm already like 10 minutes into this outro, I should tell you about the plus extension because we're just talking about the stuff in the first hour so far. And there's so much more that we talked about in the second hour. So I'll remind you, you can get access to Interverse Plus and get the two-hour version of these podcasts by going to patreon.com forward slash Interverse. Subscribe to the Plus option for $5 a month, and you can get your own exclusive RSS feed to plug into your favorite podcast player and listen to all the episodes that you want and get the full two-hour extension where, of course, things are always juicier in the second hour because we're much more warmed up to one another. And this was no exception. I thought the second hour was incredible. This time in the second hour with Becca, we talked about the etymological roots of the word invention. We talked about discovering one's sense of awe and wonder, the alchemical as above, so below mysteries of stars, water, and language, and the story of Erendil, the Mariner, the first and most prevalent character in Tolkien's saga, who is in the background throughout the entire story, but probably not noticeable to a person on their first read. We talked about Frodo's star glass and the Venusian archetypal symbolism in the story. A Jungian perspective on the archetype of the syzygy, which represents uniting solar and lunar qualities to individuate ourselves as the higher self. We talked about understanding the difference between gender and polarity and seeking the balance between Mordor and Saruman as symbols of the consequence of industrialization and scientific reductionism. Talked about the tree people known as Ents, many people's favorite characters from the books, I'm sure, and Tolkien's perspective on nature as a conscious entity. We talked about solving our problematic effects on the environment with personal responsibility and community. Tom Bombadil was a, another topic that came up. He's a character that is the very most anomalous one in all of the Lord of the Rings. And he probably or possibly represents the self-realized individual in relation to nature. And we discussed the curious incident in the Barrow Downs and consciousness time travel. <laughs> and that awesome moment where the Lady Eowyn shanks the Witch King of the Nazgul. I am no man. <laughs> really awesome moment. And of course, there's a lot more than that that we talked about. I mean. That seems like a lot, but that wasn't even all of it. I have to stop somewhere. I can't recreate the entire plus extension in the summary, but it was jam-packed. It was jam-packed. Becca's an awesome guest. One thing I will make more note of, though, that did come up in the plus extension, but I want to talk about it a little more now because I had another idea about it as I was going through editing, was how Tolkien doesn't explicitly state one way or another what something means necessarily in the story. And in this context, I'm talking about reincarnation. The incident in the Barrow Downs that we talk about in the Plus Extension, to summarize, was a time when the hobbits are traveling through the old forest. They get trapped by this evil white creature. It's kind of like a zombie, draugr, evil, undead warrior thing. They get trapped in its Barrow Down. And the hobbit, Mary, after being rescued by Tom Bombadil from the Barrow Down, he has this strange moment where he seems to be reliving the life of a man from the ancient past whose sword and maybe armor was contained in that barrow down. So what was going on there? We're, we wondered if Tolkien was maybe inferring that Mary was somehow reincarnated from this character. 
But it didn't really make sense because they didn't have a lineage with one another, being that this was a man and Mary's a hobbit. But one thing that came to mind was a different take on reincarnation that I've entertained a lot in the past. And I think it's probably a likely answer to reincarnation, which is that since all living beings carry the spark of the divine, or in Tolkien's universe, the spark of Iluvatar, then in a way, everyone has lived every life already. Because that spark being an image of the totality of the creator would contain every story and every song and everything that had ever or would ever be, in a way. And so the incident where Mary in the Barrow Downs has this moment of recalling this past existence, it could support that. And there's other moments in the story as well, such as Gandalf's resurrection and the statement, I've been sent back. He basically dies and comes back. And who sent him back? I don't know if it was the Valar. They don't seem to have that power. They don't seem to do that with other beings. And maybe Gandalf as like the real representative of the fool going on the fool's journey through the archetypes. He has this rebirth moment as he moves from the outer strength to the inner strength in a way. But that's a that's just a theory. But other evidence for that theory that maybe in Tolkien's universe, the reincarnation works in that everybody is basically Iluvatar experiencing itself as a character. These characters have prophetic dreams. Multiple prophetic dreams happen in the story. Some are very important to the story, and they're not really detailed in the movies at all. And then there's moments where they have this uncanny knowing of when to act, when it's really important that they do something and they couldn't have known. Like when Frodo and Sam are at the very end of their strength and they're climbing Mount Doom, but they've collapsed. They're so exhausted. They're starving. They're dying of thirst. But somehow they find the inspiration to get up and finish the climb and finish the fight just at the last moment before the armies of Gondor and Rohan are going to be crushed by Sauron. But they don't know that. They just have this whim that it's now or never. We have to do this now. They've just been lying there dying, I guess. And then all of a sudden, at the same time, they're both like, we got this. Let's go. And also there's moments where in extreme danger, some of the characters will call out in elvish languages that they don't actually know consciously. And it will almost be like they've cast a spell to gain strength. Or there's points where Gandalf finds himself thinking about old songs or tales of lore that wind up shedding light on some mystery that he's pondering about that he doesn't know the answers to yet. So there's these moments where extraordinary knowing seems to come through a lot of moments. And to me, I think that that is a connection to Iluvatar or a connection to the universal consciousness, omni-mind, super God field. <laughs> but yeah, I, I could talk all day about Lord of the Rings. Here we are probably the longest outro I've recorded in forever. And I could I feel like I could keep going and I've got three or four times as many notes and questions left over for Becca than I actually asked her. So I had a great time. Really loved this one. There's going to be more fun books to analyze and more great episodes coming up in March. I've got a great schedule lined up for us and I'm really glad that you've been listening. Thank you for tuning in. If you aren't a plus subscriber yet, I will ask one more time that you consider doing that because there's literally no other way for me to get any kind of financial reciprocation or support for the podcast that I do. And it's actually a lot of work. I mean, it's not the kind of work that you feel bad doing. It's work in the way that 
I guess a painter feels like they're going to work whenever they paint a picture. And for me, I paint pictures with words. <laughs> I paint pictures with questions more like, but I love doing it and I'm going to keep doing it. And if you think I should do it as my, I guess, full-time job and vocation and not be doing it just out of the generosity of my heart and wanting to share this stuff with you. And to be honest, actually for my own personal passion and curiosity, if you want to make me a podcaster in a real professional way where I get paid for it, you got to join plus. And you're not just supporting me for nothing. You get the second hour of these episodes. It's like buying me a coffee once a month. Although I don't need any more coffee than I already drink. So buy me something else. <laughs> uh, but let's get out of here. Let's be done with this one. I don't want it to end because I love being in Middle Earth in my mind. But I'll definitely get Becca to schedule a second episode as soon as she's willing and able. And we will continue. I'm going to play us out today with a song from our old friend Mayonnaise. He has a new EP out, Incandescent. And you can find the links to this music that you're about to hear, the links to Becca Tarnas, the links to Interverse Plus, everything that we talked about by checking out the show notes and looking for what you're looking for. I put those detailed show notes together just for you, not for fun. <laughs> oh yeah, one last thing. If you are new to Interverse, this is your first time checking it out, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast playing platform. It's everywhere you might want to look for a podcast, including Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, the iTunes podcast app, and Google Play Store. It's pretty much everywhere. So if you enjoy it, maybe even review it, share it with a friend. It's great to leave a five-star review on the iTunes app. If you leave a review that I actually see, I'll read it back on the show. But if you don't want to type anything, just leave the five stars and it helps more people find the show that have not discovered it yet, but might like it based on the things we talk about. And all right, I guess that's it, guys. Thanks for being here and I will catch you guys on the next episode. Much love and have a great life. <laughs> bye bye. Yeah, 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 yeah